0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network.
1: Hey everyone, Aaron Broverman here, here to tell you about an exciting event for a very good cause. On April 21st, from 10 to 6 p.m. at Paradise Comics at 3278 Young Street, we're hosting sketches for pledges. Basically, a bunch of artists get together and uh, do some sketches for the general public, And all proceeds go to cancer research. So get a sketch, come on down, and donate to a very good cause. We're doing it for Darwin Cook. You might remember that on May 14th, 2016, the legendary Darwin Cook passed away from cancer. Uh, He was the artist on Batman Ego, uh, The New Frontier, among very many other high profile comic projects and then when we did sketches for pledges before on June 18th 2016 in his honor we raised $2,500 for cancer research but sadly that was bittersweet because we lost a friend to Paradise Comics Brendan Yap to another form of rare cancer so this time we're gonna try to do it again in both of their honors and raise a lot of money and beat our twenty five hundred dollar total so far we have a lot of great artists participating we have lar de souza from looking for group and gutters we have megan carter from takeoff you might have heard her episode shane Kirschenblatt is organizing the whole thing He's known for his work on the Jewish Comics Anthology, he's been in the Toronto Comics Anthology, and also Dorothy Gale, Journey to Oz, and many other artists are participating as well. If you want to participate and get in on the action on the 21st and you're part of the Toronto Comics community, just email Shane. Uh, You can email him at shane Kirschenblatt at rogers.com that's s-h-a-n-e kirchenblatt k-i-r-s-h-e-n-b-l-a-t-t at rogers.com space is limited so try to get in on that as soon as you can and uh, he'll do his best to accommodate you and give you more details i really hope you come out speech bubble will be covering the entire thing doing interviews with as many artists as we possibly can and maybe talking to the general public and seeing what kind of sketches they got hope to see you there
0: Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman.
1: Hey fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Of course, you heard off the top that we're sponsored by Harry Tarantula, and you can follow us at Speech Bubble Pod on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Today we have with us a very talented illustrator. Her name is Willow Dawson. She's a graphic novelist, a children's book illustrator. She's nominated for a number of awards. She's been a finalist for the 2018 Ontario Library Association Blue Spruce Award, the 2016 TD Canadian Children's Literature Award, and the 2016 Marilyn Bailey Picture Book Award for her book, The Wolfbirds, which she illustrated. She's also done illustrations for Avis Dolphin with Frida Wyshynski, Ghost Limb. She did a book on uh, Nellie McClung called Hyena in Petticoats, and a do-it-yourself, how-to-do comics book for kids called Lila and Echo's Do-It-Yourself Comics Club. My favorite, though, of her credits is with Susan Hughes, No Girls Allowed, where she goes through times in history where women had to pass as men. But mainly, we're here to talk about her latest book, White as Milk, Red as Blood. It is an adult fairy tale book, and it has a really, really interesting story because these are fairy tales discovered like a German archive. And uh, the author is a contemporary of the Brothers Grimm. So Willow, welcome.
0: Hi, (laughs) thanks for having me.
1: It's great to see you. Uh, We go back in the scene uh, a long time. So, uh, you know, we we grew up in the same place. I grew up in Vancouver, you're born in Vancouver. So before we get into it, tell me a little bit about you uh, your growing up life. What was your childhood like?
0: <laughs> um, okay, well, I grew up in Vancouver, BC. Okay. And uh, I was born in 1975. So you can do the math. <laughs> Figure out how old I am. Um, I was born in 1975. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Vancouver all the way through until uh, I finished high school. And then shortly after that, I uh, moved away to Toronto. Um, and growing up, you know, Vancouver... Uh, I guess sort of my fondest (laughs) memories of Vancouver is really spending a lot of time at the beach, the ocean. And um, my parents also had a piece of land in the mountains of BC in a place that we call the Caribou. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, at the time it was this tiny, I think it, I don't even know if it was like a tiny town technically or just a township, but it was really small. It consisted of a single street (laughs) with like a laundromat and. I think a liquor store and a grocery store and a hunting outfitters. And that was probably about it. <laughs> there was mm-hmm. very little there. It was this tiny, tiny, tiny place. It was called Hundred Mile House, BC. And my parents had a piece of land there, they had 40 acres. And my dad built a cabin from scratch. So we would spend our summers up there in the woods.
1: Didn't you do an autobiographical graphic novel called *The Hundred Mile House*?
0: <laughs> uh, I'm working on it. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of. I started it many years ago, and um, I think I've been kind of grappling with how to tell that story for a very long time. Partly because it's, you know, it it's not it's not a sort of standard uh, chronological story in the sense of like. I mean, it's chronological, but not in the sense of like you know, day-to-day life, it was really sort of this progression of these sort of small chunks of time each year. So every summer we would go up. We didn't live there, but every summer we would go up. And so, you know, I started out approaching it as more of like, a, maybe I'll just do a book of memories. And I've been working on kind of sort of massaging that into something more narrative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just telling yeah. the
1: story of your dad building this thing or...
0: No, he built it before I was born. Yeah. So just telling some of the stories of the land and of the, um, like of our time up there, I guess you could say, of the family. I think the sort of driving thing behind that story I've realized is really about how did I kind of become an artist? How did I become an author and an illustrator? Cool, yeah, yeah. and it's
1: all tied into your time at a hundred mile house. Yeah. So tell us that story. Like, how did you become uh, an artist? Do you think is it was uh, it just inspiration <laughs> from nature, or
0: yeah, I think it was a combination of stuff. I mean, my dad is an incredible fine artist and craftsman. He's been a huge, huge. Like I, there isn't even a word really to describe how profound of a, of an influence he had on me all those years. You know, we would just go out on nature walks together when I was little he would always take time just take moments of time to you know he'd be busy doing something and I would clearly be sort of like you know looking at something and he would come over and you know explain it to me and he would just always take that time and then when I was a little older he made me this beautiful art box and uh, filled it with all these art supplies, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like Crayola crayons <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. you know, Crayola markers. It was like real artist art supplies. Wow. Yeah. And that summer, we went off into the woods, and we started going on sketching trips together. My dad has this totally bizarre sense of direction, so you can go out into the woods with him, and he knows how to find his way back, even if you're lost he'll just be able to take a few minutes and then find his way back. He has this, yeah. I think that came from his upbringing um, in Victoria, BC. He grew up in Victoria and Nanaimo. And uh, at that time in, I guess it would have been the 40s and the 50s, there was nothing around. It was all forest, you know, and he was just given the sort of free reign to go out and run around and come back home and do whatever he wanted to do in the day you know, when he wasn't at school, obviously. And so he would go off and he has all these crazy stories of just building a raft and going down the river and then suddenly realizing he's floating out to sea and (laughs) having to, you know, figure out how to get back home and uh, like scary, scary things you would never want your kid to do, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, finding a boat, an abandoned boat that was leaky and figuring out how to patch it and then getting into the boat. And then I think it started leaking on him and he had to, I don't know. And he was all these just crazy stories of you know these near-death experiences the that he survival. had as a kid yeah learning survival skills and learning how to you know navigate in this just this very natural way because he spent so much time in the wilderness as a kid he just knows like it's just built into his DNA in a sense I guess so you know it was always really amazing going out with him because you know I always felt completely safe and like (laughs) he knew where we were and you know and would know how to find his way back home and yeah so we would go out on these sketching trips and sit down you know we just walk for a while and then sit down in the middle of some nice overgrown place and uh, sit there and sketch and draw and I remember he used to say to me he did include an eraser in it and then he told me that I shouldn't rely on the eraser <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> because I was
0: like drawing and erasing everything and drawing and erasing everything. And I remember looking over at him and being like, oh, you know, <laughs> thinking I'm not as good as him. Um, you know, as he'd be like painting on plein air and making these incredible landscapes and just these beautiful sort of, you know, gorgeous Canadian wildlife landscapes kind of coming to life and
2: wow, a on canvases
0: really was <laughs> yeah for sure really was and fascinating to watch that process too and he was a sculptor as well and uh carver and he's just an incredible craftsman and i learned a lot of uh stuff from him but also mainly you know i remember looking at a picture once and saying to him what does that mean dad and he was like well da-da-da. Then what does that one mean, dad? Well, um, what does that one mean, dad? And then he was like, what does it mean to you? And then he said, art is a conversation you have with your audience. And I thought, oh my God, that totally blew my mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was sort of in essence, I guess you could say in sort of a nutshell, the artistic upbringing that I had, the exposure to the arts that I had from a really young age, it was just built into my life. And I also was, um, I also have very severe asthma, I have brittle asthma. Mm-hmm which means that it's, um, I believe that means, (laughs) I believe, (laughs) it means, I can (laughs) tell you it does. Um, It means that I have lots of allergies and um, they're not always 100% predictable. So um, sometimes I can walk into a space and be semi-okay and two days later (laughs) react. And other times I'll react right away. But when I do react, it's severe. So it can sometimes mean hospitalizations. And as a kid, I was hospitalized all the time and I spent lots of time in oxygen tents. I spent lots of time in the hospital and uh, I was also on life support once. Um, Yeah, so I almost didn't make it a few times actually. It was one time that I remember very clearly almost not making it. (laughs) So, you know, I grew up with illness and uh, lots of time in the hospitals, and so lots of time drawing <laughs> and coloring and coloring books. And then when I was a little older, drawing and you know sketching and. Yeah.
1: Did you have to spend a lot of time inside and like.
0: Yeah, you know, um, when I was really really little, I was um, under the care of a respirologist who had me on a lot of experimental medication and kept putting me on more medication every time my body would have a reaction. Instead of taking me off what I was reacting to, he would just put me on something else to calm that reaction. So by the time I was six, I was on six different medications, adult dosages. Wow. And yeah, and it started to eat away at my kidneys essentially <laughs> like, uh-huh. which is, you know, there's not much hope after that. So yeah. a group of doctors, including a urologist and uh, a couple of other specialists, I believe, and then my family doctor, um, actually sat my parents down and said she's not gonna live past her teens. So, you know, basically, don't get too excited. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you can really explain that in any other way to parents. Obviously, that was incredibly devastating. But they said, We don't have anything else to give her. We've no, we've run out of all the options. She's none of this stuff is working on her anymore. So they were sort of forced to try something you know, else. And they ended up managing to get me off of the medication. And uh, I started figure skating. And so and then I started spending more time outdoors. So prior to that, I was in a stroller up to the age of about six.
1: Wow, it's (laughs) like me. Yeah, <laughs> As yeah. As a guy who's stroke palsy, like, yeah, your development is sort of stunted. Like, you don't learn how to dress yourself until yeah. like, later on, and you're in a wheelchair for longer or stroller for longer. You're crawling right. around for longer. So yeah, yeah. I, I totally get that for sure.
0: I know, I know. Illness in you know so many different types of illnesses. When it's severe, it's debilitating mm. in ways that I think surprise healthy people.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: know? Yeah,
0: Like yeah. You
1: don't you don't realize like. Just because you have an illness that's like defined as one thing There's mm-hmm. a lot of like complications that are associated with that that like yeah, you know <laughs> turn into something that's more like a disability Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally.
1: Crazy. So,
0: I, <laughs> I ended mean, up becoming a figure skater, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is awesome. Like, like that's what I'm. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking like it's such a interesting dichotomy because you're a you're a yeah. nature lover, but you're also somebody who gets allergic to a lot of things. Yes,
2: you're very active. <laughs> you, yes,
1: but you also have asthma. So mm-hmm. there's like a whole. You know, kind of yin and yang there of like yeah. somebody who loves nature and somebody who's very active, but somebody who, when we first see you, you know, you might not be that kind of person because you have asthma yeah. and yeah. You, know, you get allergic to things that are outdoors and stuff like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, how did you overcome a lot of your uh, illness that way?
0: They just had to get me off of the medication. Yeah, they had to. They and, then totally just, did. and
1: then it just. And then it just. Clear it up basically?
0: Well, okay. So (laughs) I'm a little hesitant to talk about it only because I think that a lot of people, you know, I understand, I completely understand people when they hear the word, they're like, that is ludicrous and terrifying and so irresponsible. And, you know, there's a lot of outrage against it right now. My parents found homeopathy. Right. And the homeopath was able to wean me off the medication. Oh. So, you know what? Who knows? I have no idea. I have worked no idea you. what it is. It worked for me. Exactly. You know, there was one time where I was about 10, I think, or nine or somewhere around there. I was still quite young and I was playing in the backyard and I got stung by a wasp. Yeah. No, a bee. Sorry, I got stung by a bee and I'm anaphylactic. Wow. So there's no returning, yeah. like unless it's a needle Yeah. or nothing. Yeah. So I um, got stung by a bee and... Uh, my friend was with me and my friend was like, pull the stinger out. So we were squeezing the stinger to pull it out. And I was slow, like I was, well not slowly, because time slows when death is near. But I was trying to pull that stinger out. And I remember just being like, nope, I'm dying. And I got inside the house and my mom called 911 right away. And uh, I was lying there and within minutes I was watching my leg, my foot, so it was on the underside of my foot, my foot getting larger, my leg, lower leg getting huge, My upper leg getting huge and the swelling going into my thigh. And then at the same time, my breathing completely shutting down where I actually had no breath going in and out. My lips were blue. My fingernails were blue. I know this because my mom was checking and she was like talking on the phone to 911 and telling them all of this. And they were like, okay, we've sent this was at a time where they would hang up the phone. (laughs) And how (laughs) old were you? I was about nine, I think. Okay. Somewhere around there, I think. I was Uh still quite small. And... I remember, like, the skin on my leg went shiny. Like, that's what happens when it's so puffy. There's nothing more than explosion. Right. Whoa. Yeah. And we were waiting for the ambulance to come. And my mom was like, well, (laughs) we might as well try this remedy. It's not going to make it worse. Right. If anything, it won't do anything. Right. So she gave me the remedy, which is bee venom. Yep. Distilled bee venom. (laughs)
1: It's like using the thing that stung Mm -hmm. you to... Cure you kind of thing. Yeah,
0: that's the whole premise of homeopathy, right? Um, But, (laughs) and I literally uh, went under my tongue and within a few minutes, I was breathing again. Wow. Yep, and then another few minutes, I was breathing full breaths. And then the swelling was going down. And then another couple of minutes later, I was like, okay, I'm fine. (laughs) I got up and I went out into the backyard and I was playing in the backyard and the ambulance arrived. I would have been dead. Yeah. That's how much time between when my lungs closed and I was in the ambulance arrived. Right. I was already outside playing. And of course they freaked out because they thought my mom had like cried wolf and all this other stuff. Right. So, I don't know, I don't yeah, have the answer. I'm not crazy. a medical technician. I don't have a microscope, you right. know, I, I can't tell you how it works, Yeah, but I can just tell you that on a couple of occasions it saved my life. That's so amazing. maybe it's my brain just believing in it, Yeah. but yeah, so that's what happened. They, they managed to wean me off of all the medication. I became a figure skater and I actually like started to thrive Wow. and I was not on that path. I was on the opposite path. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, wow.
1: yeah. Stories of so, survival are like yeah. super compelling to me. So that's really good.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm me glad. too. Yeah. <laughs> me too. For sure. So <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of your art, though, mm-hmm. like after you know getting sort of you know tutored through it by your dad, kind of thing, you mm. steered more towards like graphic novels and comics and those sorts of things like, mm. eventually, right? Yeah. How did you find comics and graphic novels?
0: <laughs> uh, so first off. Number one, I never, ever, ever thought that I would work with text. And I never thought that I would be a writer because I, you know, on so much medication as a kid, I just couldn't retain memory. And I like nearly failed every grade. I was so close to failing every grade and I was struggling in school so much. And I just had such low self-esteem about it. But in particular about writing. And words and expressing myself with words. Mm-hmm. I was able to express myself with images, but I was not able to express myself with text. Because um, it was just
1: scary? Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, I think that I've kind of always been afraid of confrontation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I think that I also saw, you know, like getting up in front of a class, for instance, and delivering a, a talk or a speech was kind of, in some ways, like confrontation. It's like, go, go now. Yeah, <laughs> like,
1: it's oh, people's worst fear. It's like terrifying. next to death, that's, that's it a really? pretty big fear for it's people. A big fear. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I totally believe that. Yeah, I had a really hard time. I would get up in front of the class and I would literally start stuttering and then I would just start bawling. And every single time my teacher would say, okay, Willow, that's cool. You can go sit down now. And I would be like, oh man, I failed again. And you know, I just had the worst self-esteem, especially with anything to do with text. So I just never thought that I would ever work with it. I never, I thought I was gonna be a fine artist. And I still think of myself as a fine artist because I'm very multidisciplinary, but I left high school and I started working, I had a number of small jobs, but I eventually ended up at this amazing toy store in Vancouver called The Toy Box. Some people remember that store, but it was this amazing store and uh, I started working there and she kind of ran retail very differently than other people did at the time. So she gave every person in there, she gave them a section in the store. And so you were in charge of that section, every aspect of it, including the ordering of the product wow. and merchandising and pricing and everything. So you weren't just like, you know, some person who sat on the till and just rang people through, yeah. you really had more of an ownership feeling about it.
2: Totally.
0: Yeah, and then she shared profits at the end of the year with everybody based on their sections. And I took over the book section one year and, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, I really love children's books. I love the pictures in them. So I started collecting picture books because of the art. And she kept me on that section for three years, which was very unusual. And she kept me on that section, I think, because I fell so in love with books. And it was so obvious that that was where I was going to go in my life, even though I didn't know it at the time. Right. So she really nurtured that in me. Uh, her name was Jillian Beatty. The owner of the toy box, and uh, so I fell in love with picture books. And then I had a boyfriend at the time who was really into graphic novels, and he showed me a bunch of. I was like, no, no, not into comics, uh, you know. And I think I felt that way because the comics that we grew up with, like in the seventies and eighties, were, you know, a lot of them were kind of sort of for boys. Like at least that was the way that I. Kind of felt about them. That was my intuition looking at them, right? Um, I only had a small handful of comics. I I did not really love the Archie's and Betty and Veronica's. Even at that age, I felt like they were just so sexist. But uh, I remember just being like, why can't I be both Betty and Veronica? Why can't I be beautiful and smart? (laughs) You know, and rich, Um, which I am neither. But anyways, (laughs) Um, you know, as a girl, you tend to compare yourself a lot, I think. Anyways, yeah, so I had a couple of comics. I remember I had a comic Um, a Conan, the barbarian, where a a princess... Um, a beautiful princess in a loincloth comes to him in an apparition and needs him to save her from the evil crone. So very fairy tale-based yeah. and very sexist in that <laughs> sense, I think. Uh, at least that one issue. She may have been an empowered princess later, but she had to come to him in that issue. And I remember being like, hmm, I really like the way she looks though, but oh uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had um one issue of the X-Men, I forget what number it is, but it's the one where Storm and Callisto fight okay the knife fight okay. and I remember being like Callisto's such a badass. I just want to be just like her and loving storms mo like her her hair, just thinking she was so cool. I think she had a mohawk then, or she may have had a mohawk right after that, but I just remember thinking they were just so cool. So those were actually the only two comics I had as a kid that were sort of outside the Betty and Veronica realm. And certainly I think the X-Men were probably much more kind of feminist at the time than any, a lot of other stuff.
1: Yeah, it was sort of very like teen drama, mm-hmm. kind of soap opera But Yeah. Like, there were a lot of... <laughs> women on the team. And Mm -hmm. I know that that was like a conscious thing.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: But I somewhere absorbed this idea that comics were for boys and I kind of stopped reading them. I really only had those two comics and I kind of stopped reading them. And by reading, I should be clear and say, I never read the words. I actually just looked at the pictures and made up my own dialogue and narration to it. Um, And then, yeah, I met this boy and he was really into comics and he uh, showed me Dave McKean and and Bill Sinkovich. Yeah. those guys and their work and just thinking, being blown away because this was fine art in comics. And so that really sort of ignited my love of comics, I guess you could say. And then I came to Toronto and I started at OCAD and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I might wanna do stuff kind of similar to Dave McKean in terms of sculptural stuff and photography and mixed media. And then I took some time off. I got really, really sick after the first semester. It was just too much for me. I got really sick with asthma and just generally really sick. And I took a bunch of time off and I started working in comic book stores. And then I started to begin to understand the relationship between text and image in comics that I think is incredible, and that's where it kind of ignited the writing side in me.
1: Right. So where did you where did you work in terms of uh, stores and stuff like Uh, the Snail or?
0: Yeah. So I worked in in actually in London, Ontario for a little bit at a at a comic book store called La Moods. Oh. Okay. Yeah, and they're just such lovely people. Um, If you live in London, Ontario, go go to LA mood comics. They're pretty awesome. Um, And then when I arrived back in Toronto, I started working at the snail. Cool. Yeah. I worked there for many years. That's awesome. Yeah. And then I went back to OCAD full time and then I got out of OCAD. I was publishing mini comics and I got out of OCAD and then kids can press approached me to do no girls allowed.
1: Cool. Yeah. So in terms of the relationship between Text and image in comics. Yeah, how do you interpret that? Like, what is special about that relationship for you?
0: Ah, uh, well, <laughs> you know, I. It's really about that sort of interplay between the two. You know, I, I think that text, the relationship betwex, between text and image in comics is is pretty complex. I love the fact that you can draw something and not tell it. Right? You should never. Describe what you've drawn, Mm. (laughs) essentially. Just don't do that. Please don't do that. Don't describe what you've drawn. So, you know, you can really kind of play with the distance between the text and the image, and you can drive greater meaning and depth, I guess you could say, to the story and layers upon layers upon layers to the story with that. You can really use those two things and, you know, the combination of those two things together to drive meaning and to create layers and i love the idea in comics you can you know there's so much you can do with that sort of internal versus external stories uh you know you can draw something and have the character thinking something completely different you can play with those juxtapositions of things where you know somebody is doing something but it's in contrast with what they're saying for instance which is so much of life like you know you're arguing with somebody and yet you're you know, body language is actually saying something totally different than what you're saying verbally, right? Mm. Um, Sometimes. So, you know, I love that about it. I love that connection between the two that, you know, you don't want to repeat what you're drawing. You don't want to describe what you're drawing. You want to, you know, add layers and meaning to it and that you can use dialogue, you know, dialogue in a comic, you can use it to sound a lot more kind of the way that a person normally talks, I guess. Right. Right. So, it's you know, a you more can... more colloquial. Yeah, you can add in the li- the likes, like, 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 you know, and the whatever. Wow. That would be, normally be edited out in a novel. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it would often be, you know, edited out in a novel. But in a graphic novel, I think there's a little bit more sort of forgiveness with that kind of stuff in there. Um, there's a lot that you can show about a person, about a character,
1: mm-hmm.
0: just, you know, by how you craft their dialogue. Right. Yeah.
1: And then also you have control over the pace of the story in a yes. way that other mediums don't, right?
0: Well, I think that you have control over the pace of the story in all mediums, but I think it's just different in comics. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure how I would really kind of describe that difference, but I think it's just different in a comic or a graphic novel. I think there are lovely things that you can do with comics where you can kind of slow time down or speed it up. And I love... I love that idea, especially when you think about experiences, like my experiences where I've been really close to death, time slows, time has always slowed down for me. Right. And, you know, I love that notion that you can do that to hint at things that are greater than, you know, what you would necessarily just say, Mm -hmm. right? Or show, you can hint at that stuff.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. So then you get, uh, you know, Kids Can Press approaches you after you're mm-hmm. doing your mini comics and that kind of thing. Yeah. What was it about your work that they that they dug and they gave you your first assignment?
0: <gasps> uh, <laughs> so, okay, No Girls Allowed. I think it was originally going to be, I can't remember which kind of came first, but I think at one point it was going to be um, a graphic novel. And then next, I think they were like, no, no, maybe it should just be a picture book. And then they kind of came back to the graphic novel idea and they were looking for somebody, I think, who would be sensitive to the subject matter, right? Um, and then, so who was kind of already doing, you know, work um, around women and women's identities, right? right. And and uh, and gender fluidity and gender identities. They were also looking for somebody who could handle the um, historical research because in a graphic novel, you know, the author is going to do the research for the text, but there is an incredible load of visual research that has to happen if you're going to do something historical. So they wanted to find somebody who knew how to do that. And I was working with Emily Polweary. Okay. Yeah, on um, a little – short graphic novella. It's my very first one. It's really interesting to look at it because you can see this like terrible art in issue one. And then you can see how I kind of like slowly, you know, developed my style across that book. It's mm. so it's, you know, please don't look at it, but also look at it if you're... <laughs>
1: if you're yeah. See the evolution. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I remember me starting out and wanting, you know, looking at help at Mike Magnola's stuff and his progression too, which was really fascinating to see. I'm sure that he's probably, you know, his early stuff is like, oh, don't. Look, I don't know. Maybe he's not. But we were working on Violet Miranda Girl Pirate, and uh, it was a story of two girl pirates very loosely based on Anne Bonny and Mary Read. Right. uh, Two real pirates um, who traveled around the oceans with Jack Rackham. So um, they both disguised themselves as boys, but uh, they were also at least one, maybe both. Actually, I'm a little foggy on the history of it now, but um, at least one of them was pregnant. So... You know, their identity wasn't totally. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody knew. (laughs) Somebody knew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, I had been working on that story with Emily. And then um, Kids Can Press, I think they liked the fact that I was doing a lot of historical research. I was very concerned. I was very, very, very concerned about getting all the details.
1: And I read that like for the Girl Pirate book, it was sort of because... It was like a reaction to Mm. the way the female characters in *Parts of the Caribbean were portrayed. (laughs) I kind of read that. Is that true? No, you're
0: right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we saw the first Pirates of the Caribbean and both Emily and I were like, what? Why is she always bending over? (laughs) Why is that all that she does? She just bends over and shows her, can I say? Yeah, yeah. On air? Okay. She just shows her tits all the time. And we were just like, this is odd entertainment, you know? And... I think actually that film is kind of interesting because it sort of you know the series of of those movies kind of shows the shifting tide I think that was starting to happen then in terms of like female role models and like uh, that's kind of unacceptable you can't just have a girl who's you know needs to be saved all the time right yeah and uh, so you you see her over the four films I can't remember how many now but you see her mm -hmm, yeah you see her over those becoming kind of stronger and stronger and then. Sorry, being able to take care of herself at the end of it. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, so that first film, we were just like, what? And then, you know, I didn't even know. <laughs> Emily was like, you know, Willow, there were real <laughs> girl pirates. And I was like, what? <laughs> she totally blew my mind. And so I started, you know, she told me about Anne Bonnie and Mary Read, And then I started doing research and discovered all these other female pirates. And then also all these female, you know, how frequent it was for women to go to war as well yeah. which was interesting and end up on the on the merchant ships end up on the um I was probably a little might be a little more rare for them to end up on the um I don't want to say warships, but the navy ships right just because the navy ships were very uh tightly run and pretty abusive i think yeah, so i there's think there's like a regimented thing yeah there. and i and i think that a girl being on board would probably have been discovered much sooner
1: right
0: on board a ship like that but yeah so that kind of blew my mind that actually, you know, I don't know how I was that naive, but probably because I didn't pay attention to history when I was in school because right. I was so self-conscious and couldn't ever remember any of the details and failed every class and didn't have any self-confidence in it. <laughs> so
1: Yeah, but when you have yeah. to research it for art, it's like a totally different… <laughs> Framework like you have to do it and it's exciting because you're drawing all the stuff and you got to be accurate and stuff like that So
0: yeah, and also um, History kind of came alive to me when I entered OCAD and it was the first time that I had somebody explain history to me through the lens of art and All of the art movements that coincided with all of the wars and revolutions and changes Historically, and so it was really amazing to have that validated, like that art is actually a critical part in revolution wow. <laughs> and, yeah, and totally. evolution and change. It is, it's just as you know, big of, it plays just as big of a role.
1: Well, like the Renaissance got people out of the dark ages, right? And yes. that's mostly an art movement and stuff like that. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then you ended up winning like a Schuster for kids for No Girls Allowed, right? Uh, that's I think I, that's I was a finalist okay. for it.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think the I was a finalist for the Schuster that? Award. A nomination, yes.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really cool because, you know, those awards are Canadian, which is pretty amazing. Right. And mm-hmm.
1: at that time, uh, the Schusters were pretty young. Like, they'd mm-hmm. only been around for a few years. So yeah, yeah. It was just getting established, these Canadian comic book awards and stuff. And so,
0: comics for kids was pretty young, too. Yeah,
1: totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like, we didn't have – there was no Little Island comics back no. then or no. anything. No. I think this was even before TCAF, the Toronto Comics Artists Festival, focused so much on kids' stuff like they do now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So after No Girls Allowed, uh, what did you move on to after that? Were you then into, like, the children's book... Uh, Mm -hmm. did all the gates open for you in terms terms of, (laughs) Uh, oh, she's a children's book illustrator now kind of thing. Yeah, you
0: know, it was an interesting thing because um, a a lot of the stuff that I've done has been with publishers who were very new to comics and graphic novels. Yeah, so in some cases what that means when you work with a publisher that doesn't really know a new medium is that you're kind of taking some of the reins, I think, uh, in terms of sort of like helping them to understand how things work differently and communicate differently and how a graphic novel is different from a picture book, how, you know, it would need to be treated differently in terms of the market and stuff. So it was really kind of amazing because what that meant was that I had very open conversations with my publishers about what we were doing with the books, and you know, and how to market those books, and that was really cool. You don't always get that when you're an author or an author illustrator.
1: And it's great that they they trusted you. Yeah. Because sometimes authority figures think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I know best. <laughs>
0: well, certainly one thing that I think I've been confronted by on you know more than one occasion, but it you know are actually no, I think it was once. <laughs> it was once, and I shall not name. But um, you know, was this sort of feel, you know, this sort of like sense on the part of the publisher that a graphic novel was really the same as a picture book and therefore should be marketed the same. And right. actually there's a big difference. You know, it's very important, I think, for graphic novels to be on the shelves with the same picture books of the same subject matter. Right. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also important for graphic novels to be uh, treated differently as well. Right. And so I think that cross-marketing uh, is actually very important, right. um, making sure it's on... <laughs> like all the shelves Not just a graphic novel section in the corner Shoved away, you know, hidden I think it's important for, you know If you're if it's a book on, you know A specific historical topic Then it should be with the other picture books Of that same historical topic right. For the same age range
1: Because it's just a different expression Of yeah. the same subject, right? Mm-hmm. Right, cool Totally, totally awesome. Because yeah. I think that's kind of why Comics were stunted for so long Is that mm-hmm. they were treated as sort of junk media and, like, yes. you know, you know that kind yeah. of thing. And if you bring them in as, like, just another medium, yeah. uh, it sort of expands the audience. Like, more people get exposed to it than just yeah. the comic collector or, who, or whoever would typically yes. read comics. Right?
0: Yes. And especially in children's, in the world of kind of children's publishing, it sort of seems like there's, like, an additional kind of barrier there. You know, there's you and the publisher, and you're kind of making these decisions About, you know, what subject matter you're going to write about and draw about and um, what's going to go into it and what's appropriate for kids and what's not. And then there's this whole other sort of realm out there, sort of wall out there, I guess you could say, of like you know there's the parents and then there's the teachers and librarians so there's this whole sort of network of people um and at any point along the way a book can basically be like you know um at in the states right with this one summer and you know all the backlash on that right. and uh Raina telgemeier's books as well and all the backlash on those books right. you know it's like you know you can sometimes kind of be confronted by this other, you know, body out there that's sort of, you know, amorphous and changing all the time, but is, you know, scared of things being too whatever. Because too we have
1: to protect the children.
0: Yes, yeah. This this notion that you have to kind of protect the children, and that, yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, but so when you work in children's media, you're kind of you kind of have to have that. In mind a bit but the one really exciting thing is I think that graphic novels have really pushed open the doors and I, I think that um, you know children's publishers I'm noticing now the ones that are flourishing they are publishing stuff that's uh you know wouldn't have been acceptable only a few years ago and I think that in part comes from comics and the the world of comics kind of penetrating children's publishing, but I think it also comes from you know, um, us, you know, that big recession that we had a bunch of years ago and changes uh, in the industry as a result of uh, technology. right? And publishers realizing that, you know, they need to maybe have a smaller list, but a smaller list of more impactful stuff. So I'm starting to see, which is really exciting publishers, publishing books that are more poignant, I guess I would use to describe it, but other people might say risque (laughs) subject matter, right? Stuff that I think is more uh, relevant to kids today right now. And I'm starting to see that like Groundwood Books is a a phenomenal publisher. Owl Kids Books is amazing. Um, First, second books in the States, publishing incredible stuff,
1: what kinds of things like what kinds of subject matter are they are they trying to tackle
0: well i think they're trying to tackle subject matter that you know validates k- the fact that kids grow up and they're assigned a gender but they may not feel right. like they yeah. right like they they may you know they're like i was assigned this gender and i'm not this gender right. <laughs> you know or like this one summer for instance where there's um I don't know if I want to, like, give it away. (laughs) It's probably okay to give it away, but, you know, because hopefully the audience here is going to buy for kids and not necessarily for themselves. But, you know, at the end of it, you realize that the mom has been – what the mom has been struggling with this whole time and that, you know, there was um, a a baby that was stillborn. Right. And, you know, I – I think that those things are so important to talk about with kids and to give kids space to, you know, have their real feelings around that, which are complicated and messy and not always, you know, some days it's crying and some days it's laughter and other days it's rebellion and, you know, like...
1: Because these things happen in real life, and they we do. process them through like our media and our yeah. entertainment and stuff like that, yeah. right? So yeah,
0: we really do. We you got to, really
1: you know, as a as a medium, as like an entertainment thing, yeah. you have to sort of be there for ki- for kids, right? You do,
0: and I think that you have, you know, Neil Gaiman says it, <laughs> which is interesting. Where, uh, you know, he says it's really important to scare children <laughs> because uh, how else will they ever. I'm not doing a good job of quoting him, but basically he says, you have to scare children. Otherwise, how will they ever be able to navigate a scary situation if they've never had a chance to, you know, if they've always been protected from those feelings, those fears, right? I think that kids want, you know, they want material that is real. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Just as much as they want material that is fantasy and like
1: strategies to process what they're feeling. Yeah. You know, if if someone's not immediately there to tell them how.
0: Yeah. 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 And but also letting them be afraid. Right. Because in fear is where you start to begin to gain those exit strategies. Right. You know that you might not have if you maybe if you were like protected all the time. I don't know. You know.
1: Right. No. Totally. Totally listening to Speech Bubble. We'll be right back. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. how sometimes I feel like you know researching your career it kind of goes full circle like in one way, you're exposing uh, publishers to comics and how they're different in the marketing and then you get to do you know teaching kids how to do their own comic with uh, the Lila and Echo, uh, do it yourself comic book. So in in that way, it sort of it sort of came back around, right? You got like yeah. a full ownership of like, okay, comics sort are of a thing now. I get to teach kids how to how to do it. Like that's pretty awesome, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also teach a course at U of T actually, and I go into schools and libraries all the time and talk with kids and show them stuff. It's um, I love doing that. Cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then in terms of fear, like we're talking about, I mean, now you're sort of doing like picture books for adults cuz the main reason you're here yeah. is for this fairy tale the white is Milk, red as blood which mm-hmm. is your newest your newest thing and this is like fascinating because it has such a story behind it that you essentially it's i guess it said in the introduction that you pretty much discovered it and like Oh
0: no 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 sort of
1: <laughs> because didn't you you said it said it said you read it in the guardian that this thing was out there and then you yeah. wanted to make it into an illustrated picture book, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell, us, tell this crazy story about these like, stored away fairy tales by this like, German contemporary, uh, yeah. Franz Xavier Schoenewerth. He's like a contemporary of the Brothers Grimm and nobody yes. knew about it. Like, t- yeah, you gotta yeah. tell the story. It's, it's pretty amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, pr- it's pretty amazing. So I, number of years ago, I, I think that I was thinking about having kids I felt like I was kind of on the clock. And I think because of that, this whole sort of change in my career began to boil up, I guess you could say. Um, So I started working on The Wolf Birds, which are a book about wolves and ravens. And I just wanted to quickly say, like, Owl Kids actually, you know, there's two death scenes in that book. And I my first instinct was to kind of hide the carcass that the wolves are eating. Right. <laughs> and all kids actually said, No, we want you to show that because and I thought, whoa And that book came out and we thought it was either going to get one star or five on um, Goodreads. And uh, it either gets one star or it gets five because people are like so shocked by those two death scenes or they're like, you know, and they don't want their kids to see it or whatever. Or they're like, this is incredible. And so I think this kind of change started to happen for me, I guess, kind of going back to childhood fear Through this sort of like process of, you know, realizing that I needed that it was now or never to have kids. (laughs) This was it. (laughs) I told you I was born in 1975. So do the math.
2: Yeah,
0: Um, And uh, really feeling like my body was getting old if I was going to do it. It had to be now. So you know, this kind of shift and change sort of starting to develop in me. I think that's what motherhood is kind of driven in is this need to kind of go back to childhood fear and re-explore it so that I'm less afraid. But I think it's made me more afraid in some ways. <laughs> but also so that, you know, I can be a better mother to both my kids, I think, you know, that I feel like I would be if I just ignored it and kept them safe all the time, I guess. I don't know. Right. I don't really know. I mean, we're just at the beginning of this with the kids. They're so little, but, you know, these are things that I'm kind of mulling over in my head. So the picture book was kind of the beginning of this sort of metamorphosis, I guess you could say. And then, and re- also realizing like, you know, life is short, time disappears quickly. And, uh, you know, the the material that I have always wanted to work with was fairy tales. Right. Yeah. Going and back to the
1: toy box and, you know, your yeah, little books and
0: stuff. Yeah, and I was collecting all kinds of picture books with fairy tale, you know, fairy tale picture books. Mm-hmm. Um, and fairy tale books because I just love that stuff. In fact, it was like the largest sort of shelf on my bookshelf was filled with with fairy tales and and picture books that kind of replicated those, those types of stories. Um, you know, interestingly, like, when I was younger as a kid and read those fairy tales, you know, some of them have this real sort of romantic element to it. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I always was like, oh, that's such a romantic story. But the ones I was most captivated by were the ones that really scared the crap out of me. And Red Riding Hood was probably the one that scared me the most. Um, And then Rapunzel was another one, which oddly was this sort of weird meld mashup between that Conan the Barbarian comic, this how it sort of ended up resting in my nightmares. Right. But the land is all, you know, the, the connection to the land and to nature and to the violence of nature as well is also kind of deeply embedded in all of this, I think. And also growing up in the 1980s, you know, in Vancouver, BC, some pretty bad stuff was happening at that time. And that drove a lot of fear into my parents, um, And uh, into lots of parents, I think, people, you know, our age who grew up at that time describe having been terrified of, you know, bad people. You know, I don't want to talk kind of too much about it, but I guess just like, you know, scary bad people. At the time in Vancouver, it was a time of, you know, uh, it was very overgrown, lots of places to hide out and... You know, I don't think the law was very smart in terms of <laughs> their knowledge of you know complex and and brutal crime, and uh you know there were like it was it was kind of a scary place to grow up. Vancouver always had this very seedy underbelly, and uh, I was very sensitive to that as a child. I knew that My dad says that the police knocked at the door at one point when I was very little. And told my mom that if she had any children, she had to keep them close, like under her eyeball all the time, because somebody was doing bad things to kids. And uh, I don't want to name. I, I don't think we should name the the perpetrators. Yeah. Um. I guess I'll allude to it, but it was it was it was a pretty um, pretty scary time. I think at that time for parents and mm-hmm. for and for kids growing up then. And, uh, I grew up. You know, my mom had some not so great experiences in her life. Uh, it's not my story to tell, but right. um, yeah. But, you know, the result of that is that there was the fear of the possibility of something happening to her children. And then there was that uh, being kind of mirrored in these experiences she had had with men who were not good men. Right. And so, you know... Chi. Now, I said at the beginning of this that it's important to scare children. I think, uh, you know, I think there's scaring and then there's terrorizing. (laughs) But I think that it's given me nightmares my whole life, real nightmares. But I think it's also, you know, resulted in me um, being able to kind of escape a couple of sort of scary situations that almost happened yeah you probably have some really
1: good instincts that way
0: yeah i think you kind of sharpen your instincts um you know i don't want to say you do because things happen things happen yeah shit happens and it happens to good people yeah but i want to say that you know like i think you do kind of start to sort of sharpen your uh, your instincts i guess i don't Mm know you know so the idea of like just just you know, having those kind of escape strategies, I guess, has always been drilled into me ever since I was a child. And, you know, Vancouver at that time was was a scary, scary place. There were bad things, bad, bad things were happening. And so there was the fear that I grew up in, that sort of um, toxic kind of fear environment that I think many kids grew up in at that time, just because it was the 80s. And, you know, and and also, actually, I just want to say this, too. Like, my dad also said, you know, this was very biz- they're very weird for him. Too, because he was like, you know, I was a kid in the 40s and 50s and we've just, you know, our parents just sent us out of the house with a lunch and said, like, come back at dinner at dusk right. and you just made your way home at dusk mm-hmm. and no one ever asked where you were or what you did or anything. Yeah. And like his, you know, experience is almost drifting off to sea. Like yeah. literally almost drifting off into the ocean because the tide was pulling him out. Wow. And he somehow just managed to barely make his way back.
1: And you're on your own. You're completely like nobody on knows your own. You're there. No
0: like... one knows you're there. No one knows where you are. <laughs> yeah, it's... yeah. So this time where like parents were so trusting, right? Right. And then suddenly this time where parents were no longer able to be trusting. Right. Right? Because nobody understood what was happening and it was very scary. Mm. And so I grew up in that. And, you know, as a kid I grew up with a lot of fear around the notion of, and I still have this fear. It's one of my deepest fears. In fact, I almost feel like crying just thinking about it, but, you know, of like being abducted as a kid. Yeah, and I grew up with that. And, you know, I, like, as a kid, like, we would, you know, I'd go, like, out with my mom and like when i was a little older and i was able to ride a bike finally and i can remember riding a bike and getting a little ahead of her on the path and coming around a corner you know where i kind of lost visibility with her i was still close enough to be able to call out to her i could right. hear her talking back there but i like turned the corner and there's a man standing there and he's i thought he was peeing onto the road but i don't think he was yeah. Yeah. So like the public masturbators yeah, and like all, you know, I grew up with all of that, the flashers. And like, you you know, as a child, that's very scary, right. especially if you're in like told all these terrifying <laughs> stories. But then you grow up and you start to realize you start to kind of parse the difference, I guess. And like you start to realize like, well, maybe the masturbators aren't as scary mm-hmm. as the guy who follows you down the street right. at night past the point where you tell him. You know, where where you don't tell him, but you make it very clear that you're afraid, yeah. right? And as a child reading Red Riding Hood, you know, I never really clued into it until I, I started later reading about Red Riding Hood and how Red Riding Hood is a really interesting tale because it was used as this, like, you know, it, it's had so many different functions throughout the times, like, at one point, it was used to, like, scare little girls to not, like, be trusting of, you know, men in the woods. Right. right. When they were off to grandma's house. Right? The wolf in the woods, meaning that male perpetrator, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's had, you know, it's been sort of, it's had other sort of interpretations where it's about female sexuality blossoming into sexuality. And then it's had other interpretations where I believe at one point, even here in Canada, I think it was you know, it sort of had this resurgence around the time when uh, settlers were killing all the wolves because they were, you know, the ranchers were killing all the wolves because, and they were on this mission to, you know, run wolves into extinction. Right, yeah. Literally because they, you know, were considered a, like a scourge, the yeah. scourge of like, you know, their livelihood, right? right, right, yeah. So it's a really interesting tale. And growing up, you know, with the land, at 100 Mile House in this little cabin at nighttime listening to the wolves howling and listening to the coyotes. And interestingly for me, the wolves never really scared me. I think because I read Julie of the Wolves as a kid, which is story of a girl who runs away and ends up kind of, um, you know, she uses wolf language right. to um, and submission to gain the respect of pack of wolves and learn and is able to survive on the arctic in the tundra um as a result of that right that was quite a remarkable story to read as a kid so i always kind of viewed wolves as being more like (laughs) less ferocious even though they are like obviously realizing that i should never go up to a wolf but you know as more of like they have, you know, they're going to be able to listen to reason. The wolves will listen to reason, right? Like, if I just go down on my belly, it'll all be fine. But the coyotes terrified me because you know, there was a lot of talk about coyotes taking dogs off and, you know, tricking the dogs and then killing the dogs and eating them. And that terrified me. So, and then I had that comic of um, Conan the Barbarian and there's these weird rat creatures and they climb up the castle wall. So I had this like bizarre, this like, fear, deep fear of these sort of like canine, half canine, half human creatures climbing up the walls of the cottage to uh, hurt me. And now when I look back on that, I realize like that was such a combination of the violence of animals and the violence of humans. Right. And, um, you know, living in that fear and trying to wrestle with that fear. And so, you know, so I read about this book uh, just to come back around to it. <laughs> um, I read about this book. I forget what year it was, but it was as I was kind of thinking about having kids and realizing that I needed to make some, I wanted to make some changes in my career and do work with material that was more kind of central to to uh, my childhood, I guess. Right. And my exposure to the grim stories as a child and stuff. And um, incidentally as well, my partner is is part German, yeah. And so, my kids are part German now. Um, so, I read about the discovery of these stories in The Guardian. And I immediately started talking to one art director who I knew was like interested in this type of stuff. And she was like, we have to do this book. So, I put a proposal together and I got it off to her. I think like a week before my son was born. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I sent it off to her and I had no idea. I had no idea how I was going to ever like mm-hmm. access the material. I had no idea. I don't speak German. I had no idea how I was going to like, I had no idea. I just knew that this material existed and I knew I needed to work with it. I desperately needed to work with it. And so I put the the proposal on my publisher's desk and then I wrote to the woman who had discovered the material. So this is actually a Shonworth Society.
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah. This is the thing I really wanted to get into. Yeah. Because should I tell it or should you tell it like how this was discovered? Yeah. And then basically for those who who don't know. Yeah, why don't you tell it? This is an incredible thing. Yeah. Basically like for like 150 years or something, yeah. these these fairy tales by this guy, uh, German friends, Xavier Schoenworth, who is a contemporary of the Brothers Grimm, were like in a German archive somewhere, yeah. and nobody knew that they existed until somebody opened the door, I guess, of this archive. <laughs> and we're like, oh, there's all these like fairy tales here that are like... And because they'd never been discovered or disturbed or whatever, they're a lot closer to, like, original oral tradition than the Brothers Grimm fairy tales are, because Brothers Grimm have been interpreted by Disney, and there's all this you know, entertainment stuff that we've like grown up with and, and that they kind of they also thing.
0: edited those um, fairy tales over the course of their lives. Right. there are many editions and and edits upon edits upon edits. Yeah.
1: Right. And they they sort of catered to their
0: audience
1: mm-hmm. as the audiences were changing. They got more yeah. sanitized, I guess. A or? little bit. Yeah. In, yeah, a little bit.
0: Yeah. Still the violence. Okay yeah
1: okay yeah so what i wanted to know is and maybe you know this is like mm-hmm. how does something sit there for that long <laughs> in an archive without anyone actually like opening the door sooner
0: <laughs> yeah i have no idea i mean you know i i have no idea i i'm very curious about that too and actually i've wanted to um talk with the woman who uh discovered the tales her name is erica i can see her okay yeah and she discovered the tales i think she i think she knew that they existed because a couple of volumes had been um published three volumes had been published i believe so she knew that they existed but she didn't know where they were and so i think she I don't know, but I think she probably made it her mission to find it and then eventually found it. I don't know. <laughs> I have this, uh, in, in, you know, this dramatic, like, you know, story in my own head of her, like, knocking on everyone's doors and like, we must see in your attic. Yeah, we like, must go through your basement. It's like, like Tomb Raider
1: or like yeah, Indiana Jones or something. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Um, you know, so what happened was he, the biggest couple of differences between the Grimm's and Von Schonworth
2: Okay. Um
0: yeah they both worked for the king so they were both collecting stories and in fact actually the grimm's told the king that von Schoenworth should be the the person to continue on their legacy so he was a contemporary and he was also known to them and he was also suggested uh by them to the king to Mm -hmm. take over for him so um the grimm's They uh, lied in their first (laughs) book. Um, They said that they were collecting the tales from all kinds of people everywhere, and it was all straight from the oral tradition, and that was, in fact, not true. They had three or four sources, and they were mostly middle class, I think one or two upper class people. Um, So, they were not actually talking to the servants and to um, the people spinning at the looms and the people carrying these tales for generations and generations. So uh, but what Von Schoenworth did was he's he was a linguist and a historian, I believe, so he was very interested in keeping things um in preserving dialect and preserving um history. And so he um sent out a survey, I believe probably on paper, I assume, sent out a survey Um, Just to kind of like get a sense of like what was out there, I guess, into the communities in the Upper Palatinate, which was where he was from, where he was born. And then from there, he actually did travel around after that. He actually went around and spoke to these people and copied down the tales. Wow, Shelley uh, Tanaka, who translated and... um, there's also another woman who's done another translation as well, Maria Tatar. And they both talk about how um, you can see the dialects. You can see the differences in the tales. And I noticed it too, with some of the tales, how like some of them have, you can just tell they were told by different storytellers, right, which is really interesting. So they were all collected from the oral tradition and then written down and then kind of just left in this archive for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And he put his work out Unedited. And I th- people say that you know that is probably why it was not as successful as the Grimms because the Grimms actually can like, you know, they were adapting their work and editing their work as you said, based on their audiences. Right. Uh, likes and dislikes and whatever. So, you know, they were responding to the audiences, whereas he was not. He didn't,
1: because he was more interested in like preservation mm-hmm. of dialect, yeah, and, and history, language, and history.
2: Mm-hmm. And stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. So very, very interesting. So the Grimm's later apologize in a later edition, <laughs> and <laughs> they and they come clean, you mm-hmm. know, on the fact that they were not talking to you know people. Cutting up the food for the rich people in the you know basement um, kitchens, right? But von Schoenworth was doing that, right. yeah. So from when my you
1: when you're like a fairy tale writer or collector who works for the king, mm-hmm. w- why was that a job? Like, what did the king need fairy tales?
0: <laughs> why? <laughs> oh man, I my history is not a hundred percent here. There was a war. Where I believe Germany was, um, I forget which war it was, but uh, at the end of it, Germany sort of realized, you know, there was this big kind of cry for a national identity in Germany as a result of it. I think that a lot of countries in that sort of general region of Europe were kind of like the borders were kind of being decided Mm. at that time. And so, yeah. And so the king, there was... You know, um, one of the mandates was to collect the cultural heritage and preserve the cultural heritage and, you know, sort of preserve that sense of nationality. I see. Right? I see. So it's like in
1: order to like (laughs) lay claim to a certain part of your country or your city or your identity while borders are happening, it's like Mm -hmm. the fairy tales are sort of used as evidence
0: Uh, to like
1: where you're from kind
0: of? Maybe I'm not sure if it was so much as evidence or more. You know, I, I, again, I don't know because I'm not a historian, uh, so I wish I could answer this with absolute certainty. But I don't know. I kind of assumed that it was more just kind of like, "What is Germany?" Okay, now we know what Germany right. is, right? right? These are like the time capsules. Let's collect and preserve. Yeah. yeah, the time capsule. Let's yeah. preserve the history. Let's make sure we're clear on what Germany is. Right. But you're right. I mean, maybe it was like, "Do you know this?" Fairy tale in the story? Which version do you have? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure that this was also probably, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I would be very curious to talk to somebody who has studied the history of Germany back this far and can expose some of the roots of the, you know, that sort of like nationalism fueling into you know, Nazi Germany even too. Right, I don't, right. Uh, exactly. But I, I don't know, I don't know, yeah, right? okay. I mean, uh, yeah. But the, the tales are really, the tales are really interesting to read them because they're very plain. Yeah. And they're very abrupt
1: very abrupt yeah like things are going along and then somebody dies yeah or or somebody Mm -hmm. falls in love or like there's there's like a really quick yeah reciprocity and consequences for things for things that happen to people Yeah, yeah yeah so
0: i mean i think that you know how i understand it is that a storyteller the role of the storyteller was that you sort of took that tale and you made it relevant to whoever you were talking to. Right. Right? So as the storyteller, you might add flourishes or change some details or put in a motif from another story and embed it into this story. Or, you know, you would probably mix stuff up. Things were kind of – it was oral storytelling, so there was a lot of fluidity, I think. And, you know, I think that was the beauty of it was that, you know, the the history of storytelling is like storytellers were able – to, you know, take these stories, these myths and legends and, and fairy tales and to make them uh, relatable to the audience, to make them um, resonate with the audience. Yeah. In our early conversations, we asked Shelly Tanaka if she would do the translating and she was on board right away, which was incredible. Cause she is just, she is amazing. She is a translator, but she is also an editor. And yeah. an award-winning editor and a teacher as well. Wow. And she's just – so she knows exactly how to, how to, you know, get to the root, to the bottom of what a book is about and then just support that right. in this beautiful way. And she was like – she was a driving force behind how this book kind of came to be, I think, I feel like. You know, we had early conversations and I told her I loved, uh, you know, Little Red Cap. And I loved – the older versions where they were much more raw and much darker that, you know, what I was trying to express to her at the time was like, that just feels more real to me. right? And probably because of my childhood and the fairy tales that I was reading as a kid and the environment I grew up in and the, you know, scary things I was kind of wrestling with as a kid, you know, and a teenager walking the streets of Vancouver, you know, by myself <laughs> with like, yeah, you know, so... um She, uh, so she said, okay, got it. (laughs) You want to keep, you know, you want a book of tales that is darker and we want to keep, we don't want to edit out the violence. We don't want to edit out the sexual stuff. We don't want to edit any of that stuff out. And I said, no. And she said, okay. So, um, and I think we were four women working on the book. And I think that it just felt like that material was right. That that material made sense. It made sense in terms of today, you know, and this was like, so one thing just kind of getting back to the the proposal actually sat on the desk of my publisher mm. to be for about 2 years because oh, okay. there was a giant merger happening between Penguin and Random House. Right. And my art director didn't want it to go on somebody's desk and then have that editor be let go of or yeah. whatever and yeah. that project just flail. <laughs> so she actually held on to it for about 2 years. So by this point my second child was born, my daughter. And uh, motherhood was raging inside of me at this
2: point.
0: (laughs) Raging motherhood. Um, (laughs) All those mother hormones and the protective hormones and the fear hormones and everything, right? Kind of boiling inside of me. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we were sort of starting these talks with Shelly, she was like, okay, got it. Great. And, you know, the four of us as women, I think we were all in complete agreements that we wanted to keep that stuff. And at first, Shelley said, you know, I haven't read a lot, but I have read one or two of them. (laughs) She's like, you know. They're not terribly well written. <laughs> and I was like, I know. And you know what she meant by that is like they're amateur storytellers, right? right like that's right. what you get. Yeah. Uh, you know when you interview just people, yeah. anybody. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter like whether you're, you know, like at the time were like a quote unquote lower class or a higher class. Like you just interviewing doesn't matter. Like even a higher class person wouldn't be a storyteller necessarily. Right. Maybe you were, maybe you weren't, right? Right. Um, but you know she's like they're not terribly well written, and. You know, I was like, I know, I know, I know. There's like one of my favorite stories and it just goes from here. And then suddenly they're they're in like a cave and then suddenly they're in a parlor, but there's no, <laughs> it, it looks like they used the word, those two words interchangeably as right. if they're the same thing. Yeah. But it's not, like it makes it very unclear. So, yeah. and then like fairy tales that would just kind of like go all over the place and then end and no resolution, like there was no resolution at all. Right. It was very unclear what the story was about. Yeah. So we kind of like, you know, that meant, unfortunately, we had to let go of some of the stories that we loved, but it also meant that we kind of narrowed our focus on the stories. Right. And she start, She said, so, you know, my worry is that I may have – not worry, but she was like, my sense is that I may have to do some adapting, that it's not just translation, it may also be adapting. Right. And then, when we started really looking at things, she and we started to get our kind of, like, theme together, and she started looking at the material and finding a lot of stuff that really resonated with that theme, she – uh, was like, you know what, actually, I think we need to keep the tales as close to the German as possible, the original German, right. and that the illustrations need to do the adapting. So that's how we kind of like built this project was we realized that the illustration actually needed to do the adapting. Right. Um There's the guys from, oh, I think it's the Things You Should Know podcast. I think they did a Grimm's story. Okay. Yeah. I'll send you a link after this because it's a really – there's two of them, and it's a really fascinating listen. And one of the guys says, um, you know – he talks about how they're so abrupt, and then he says, like, it's like, you know, the storyteller put the face on the story. It's like, imagine a sto- a, a person without a face, how disturbing that would be. And mm. then he's like, <laughs> but it's like, you know, the storyteller's role was to put the face on the story. And I listened to that, and I was like, yes! yes. Okay, that's what my role is, is to put the face on the story and to, mm. you know, make it, you know, uh, resonate today right
1: yeah so so it's sort of it's sort of a little more like okay i can Mm -hmm. i can understand this there's like a through (laughs) line here there's Mm -hmm. a guiding light kind of thing
0: well and i think also too as like uh somebody who works you know my history of text and image is working in comics and graphic novels and so you know even with the picture book it was like i couldn't just write you know a sort of like more old-fashioned picture book in the sense of writing something that totally repeated everything. There's, there's so much science in that book that's kind of hidden in the illustrations. Right. Right? That if you look at the illustrations, you'll, you know, and you know some of that, you'll, you'll understand the body language, you'll understand things that are happening in that book. Right. So there's layers of information in that book. Right. And, you know, with this book, that's what I wanted to do with it was to sort of layer the information and to give starting off points for conversations. So not to- sum things up, but to give conversation starting points.
1: And you also give like emotional cues because a lot of the mm. stuff that you put together, like just looking at the illustrations, sometimes yeah. they're more ethereal, sometimes they're more sinister. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's like a brutality. Sometimes it's more like... Uh, you know, more light and, mm-hmm. and there's there's sort of like a, a fairy quality a little bit yeah. to them. So it definitely tells you how to feel in some ways. You know what I mean?
0: That's what I was sort of seeking to do with it yeah. is to really kind of like tap into the emotions. Right. When I would read the stories, the thing that was the most interesting to me about these tales, you're right, that you know, like they're short, they're abrupt, things happen and then it's over Bad things happen. There's not necessarily like, sometimes there's no consequences for that. Sometimes there's no, like, there's no morality. There's no, the characters are not developed. But the thing that I thought was the most interesting about those stories was that It was what was not being said in them. Right. It was what was not being directly said that I thought was the most interesting.
1: So all the metaphor and allegory to different things and different issues presented as like fairy tale or like the
0: kind of hinting around things. So there's the there's the knight and the forest maiden story. Okay. And, you know, I read that story and I was like, okay, so it's this girl who, you know, like the knight is terrorizing the forest maidens. Right. Now, they don't say what terrorizing is, right? but I think you can kind of guess what that means, yeah, right? Yeah. So he's terrorizing the forest maidens, and then this beautiful maiden walks into the woods, and she falls asleep under, you know, in this beautiful, like, golden-lit, you know, area, and she dreams of seeing this handsome knight above her, and he also, at the same time, so he actually, she's dreaming, yeah, but like lucid dreaming because I guess her eyes are half open and right. she can re- actually see him. And yeah. so he's there and he's over top of her. Yeah. he sees her yeah. and falls madly in love with her. Like yeah. it's these odd romantic, and it's this odd like mashup of like Christian and pagan and like things going on in there mm-hmm. at the same time. But so here's this like. You know, handsome knight, but he's a bad, bad man. Right. Right? And he's terrorizing the forest maidens. And he sees this beautiful woman sleeping. And he doesn't hurt her for some reason. But he falls madly in love with her. And, you know, as a kid, I would have been like, oh, that's such a beautiful love story, you know? But now it's like I, you know, some of my research, I so I found this amazing, this really amazing podcast um, called uh, Real Crime Profile. Okay, And I love this podcast so much i cannot recommend it highly enough it's um laura richards and jim clementi and jim clementi is former fbi um criminal profiler in the us okay and uh he also writes criminal minds um i haven't watched that show so i can't vouch for it but laura richards is a former um, criminal profiler with new scotland yard Mm. and so both of them have decades of experience and the podcast is so informative The whole, you know, their whole thing is actually really being sensitive to the victims and survivors, which I think some of the podcasts that are kind of true crime, you know, it's a buzzword, right? Are not necessarily sensitive and are just
1: very hardcore about it. Yeah,
0: and are just like ripping band-aids off for people in really painful ways. Whereas these two, their whole goal with it is to... Inform people so people understand, like, if you're in a situation that is dangerous, if someone is stalking you, this is how you can tell. This is how you know if your boyfriend is, you know, exhibiting these behaviors. These are very dangerous behaviors and they can, you know, result uh, in homicide. And so the whole premise is to be informative. Right right? And she has created something called the Dash Risk Model, which is specifically to help women who are being stalked and abused as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And even men who are being stalked as well or abused, right? And she has actually, uh, she is creating real law change. Mm -hmm. So she's, she's created a stalker's registry. I think they have, I'm not sure if they've if it's done now or if it's still in process, but they have been working very hard, Laura Richards and her group, Paladin, in uh, the UK to create a stalker's registry. And this is incredible, like law changing and life changing, uh, like changes. (laughs) Changes, changes, changes. (sighs) But I just believe that it is so important because it's something that we don't talk about. And so when I was listening to that podcast and I was working with this material, I realized The Night and the Forest Maiden is about a man who is stalking these women. Yeah. And he's exhibiting all of these very dangerous behaviors that they talk about as well. Yeah. And so I realized, you know, this whole notion of how like he marries and she's so in love with him and he's so in love with her and she it was really interesting because it's a women warning women story as well. Right which is so much about what we do, we whisper to each other because we're not safe in the world, right? right? Um, There are lots of groups of people who are not safe in in this world. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's what we do to each other. So in this case, it's sort of like women warning women. And um, then it's this odd thing in the end where she's sort of forced to, you know, not forced, she wants to, she marries him, but the deal is that she has to keep him from, Um, terrorizing the maidens. right? And I thought about that. I thought, you know, this is this really interesting ending, which could be interpreted as, you know, in a very romantic way. And I didn't want to do that with it. I wanted to show what her reality probably was, right? She was probably going to end up in a life of violence with this man, right? Because that marriage doesn't change behavior like Mm -hmm. that, right? right? And, you know, marriage and pregnancy can often make that violence worse right the pressures of it can make it worse but
1: the message was like she's sort of taking it for everybody else
0: yeah that's what i kind of like you know i think again i think like another storyteller might interpret it in a romantic way in the end but for me i was like i think she's taking it for everyone else. And I think that's incredibly brutal, that women do that, that that ends up happening. Sorry, I don't want to say it's all women, because it's not, obviously, there's lots of groups of people um, that this, you know, does happen to vulnerable people, right? Mm -hmm. And, but in the case of this story, it was a woman. And so I, that's the reason why I didn't draw a romantic ending, I didn't draw a romantic wedding. Her face is, you know, her eyes are not shown right. on purpose, partly because she's supposed to be sleeping in the wood, but also because, you know, I did that intentionally because I wanted her to represent more than just that one woman in the story. Right. And also that she is going into this not seeing what she's heading into, right? And that he is, you know, hovering above her in this very menacing way. Wow. Wow yeah so that's the reason why that illustration looks like that
1: that's crazy like Mm -hmm. and and there's so many layers because it's like depending on your level of understanding and like what you bring to it you could interpret it like in a different way or like you can see it as a romantic thing or whatever like if you're a kid and like it's that whole thing of like growing up and realizing what's really happening yeah fairy tales (laughs) are sort of bring to it. And they're yeah. like that early warning system kind of yeah. thing that you were saying about yeah. like cautionary tales and yeah. morality and that sort of stuff. Yes, so
0: yes, yes. It's yes. so crazy. Yeah, I think it is.
1: There's also some stories in there like the one that comes to mind for me is the Ash Feather story. Yes. that very much was an interpretation of the Cinderella thing and yep. him being a contemporary mm-hmm. of the Brothers Grimm, it's almost like they heard the same story. You know, yeah. it's it's
0: been really interesting working th- with this material because there are stories where I'm just like, what is this story? This <laughs> is like this mashup of, you know, like there's a witch's head that's like a mashup between Fantasia and Sleeping Beauty. And then there's like all these other like bits and pieces that you see in there that like hint at whatever. So fairy tales typically... Mm-hmm were sort of, they're almost like a group of motifs, I right. guess you could say, right? The Sleeping and so, Beauty,
1: the, the shoes, Cinderella thing. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: Okay. And so those motifs would kind of move around from one tale to another to another. And so these tales, I think I'm reading through right now the um, first version of the Grimm Brothers stories. There's an English translation of it now by Jack Zipes. I'll get that name for you as well. Yeah, I
1: think I have the Jack book. Yeah. Is it that purple? It's the purple book. One? Yeah, I have yes, it. Yes. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. I can't
0: remember the complete, um, the the full title of it, but it's basically a translation mm. of the very first edition, right. which is really interesting to read because, like, they're much more closer to this material where it's like shorter and you know there's less like embellishment right and you know it's so it's really interesting kind of reading that original stuff and this original stuff you asked me a question and i totally just went just uh, just oh, in the terms Cinderella. of like
1: the Cinderella thing. Yes. and how do how, <laughs> how do two contemporary kind of- authors of the same mm-hmm. generation Basically, write what amounts to the same story story or it's a a similar story. It's almost like plagiarism sort of thing happening. I don't know. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Sorry, that's what I was getting at with it is like, these tales are all, you know, they were in the oral tradition. So they weren't really, it wasn't a copyright thing the way that we see copyright today. Right. Right. Um, It was, I think it was very different then. It was like, you told the story and you, you know, made it relevant to who you were telling it to. So. So whether that was like a humorous thing where you wanted to hint that your neighbor was sleeping around on their, you know, wife or husband or whatever, and you might insert their name into a fairy tale and, you know, tell the rest of your sisters at the loom or, you know, your brothers in the stable or whatever this story and everybody's laughing about it. Or whether it was like, you know, intended as a cautionary tale, you know, told to kind of like give you (laughs) skills and an understanding of the world, right? But. You know, so the motifs really kind of move around. They shift around. They're not not—they're not solid, but you're right because there's there's Charles Perrault's Cinderella. I believe he has a version of Cinderella. Okay, I think. yeah. And then there's the Grimm's have a version of Cinderella and Von Schoenwerth also has this version, Ash Feathers, which is very close as well. They're actually all very similar in their original, original tellings. Right, okay. So the Grimm's is actually quite similar to this, but I liked this one better because... So the odd thing about it was that we realized... Wow, we were kind of surprised. I remember Shelley saying this to me as she was first starting to read the material and then me realizing as I was getting the translations, like, wow, there's a lot of Christianity and Christian stuff in this, which we were both kind of really surprised by, but then not surprised because of the time. So, in this case, she doesn't go to the ball. She goes to the church. Right. She desperately wants to attend a church service. But… It's the same thing as the one in the Grimm's where she's required to, uh, the stepsisters want her to pick out the millet from the ashes. Right. So they mix the two things together, p- dump it on the ground for her, and she has to separate right. it. Right, and
1: there's the evil stepmother. Yeah, and- the evil stepmother. Yeah. So
0: in this case, her dad goes away all the time on business. So he doesn't really, I guess the point mm-hmm. of that is that he he probably doesn't really understand that the evil stepmother and the stepsisters are being so awful to her. Yeah. But there's also, it says in this tale, that he often forgets to bring her back presents. I was like, that's kind of mean of you, dad. Right. <laughs> you know, and that whole thing of like the stepmother kind of, you know, coming into the family and then competing for resources with the firstborn children. Right? Right being a real thing and why stepmothers were often, you know, sometimes in some cases cast as evil or as witches in it, right? So he goes away on business and she, she, the Ash Feathers says, "Um, please, will you bring me back something this time? Oh, what do you want me to bring back? Anything that even something that just grazes your face. And so he's driving in his carriage and somehow a hazelnut branch grazes his face. So he picks it off for her. And then he brings it back to her and she's holding this uh, hazelnut branch for part of the story and then it just kind of disappears. She just drops it in and it just kind of disappears. (laughs) So we're researching the story and I'm like, that's an odd thing to focus so much. Like, why was the hazelnut branch an important part of the story? That doesn't make any sense. Why wasn't it just like some other gift? And then I... I'm researching and I discover that hazelnut branches were once used to ward off snakes. Oh, okay. And she carries it to the well. And there's all this, like, metaphorical stuff between, like, the snake and the well. A right. damp, wet hole, and a her, vagina. Yeah,
1: and her cleansing and snake, herself the in the well and stuff like that, too. And, like, there's all this Maybe, weirdness around that. Yeah,
0: around women cleansing themselves in water, I think. Yeah. But, yeah, but the whole notion of, like, virginity and then blossoming into, you know, not being a virgin anymore. Right. So I realized, actually, I think that that is really the heart of this tale. For me, that's what kind of I picked up in it was that it was sort of a story of this, of sort of of sexual blossoming from being a child to an adult. Right? right. You're gonna, you know, you're a child and you're working in your father's house and you're under his rule and the stepmother and the stepsisters and then your, you know, you your next sort of uh, transition is to be married right. and to end up. A wife and the hazelnut right? branch so, sort of
1: transitions into her clothing that she ends up wearing yeah the, to the church right like that's
0: that's the way i interpreted yeah, it yeah, yeah. so that's not itself in the fairy tale uh, okay well i mean it is in a way like she drop i think she drops the branch or she loses it or something yeah. but the branch itself i thought you know it's meant to ward off snakes and then i looked at hazelnut branches and i realized they actually look a lot like coiling snakes right and that's when the light bulb went off and I realized this is a story about transformation and it's a story about her transforming from a girl into a woman. Right. And it's also the transformation you know, of the dress right, that she gets, and then magically disappears off of her when she has to go back home and resume the position of the little girl sorting the ashes. So, you know, there's no dress in this story. I decided not to draw a beautiful dress, as every other Cinderella story focuses on, right, but instead draw that hazelnut branch with snake skin kind of peeling back off of it. Right. So it's sort of it's a snake transitioning into the hazelnut branch. Yeah.
1: So it's like a symbol of transformation yeah. in and of itself.
0: Yeah, and molting.
1: Yeah. Too. Cool. Mm-hmm. This is so fascinating. So now that now that this is out, mm-hmm. or you know, it's it's coming up very, very soon, what are your what are your expectations? What do you think the reaction's gonna be? What what do you want
0: for this?
1: <laughs> I mean it's always hard oh. to ask like people yeah. who are creative like what do you think people are gonna think? Yeah, But like-
0: I- Again, I think this is either gonna be a one star on Goodreads <laughs> or a five star. Like, I think people are either gonna be one star, this is horrible or five stars, this is amazing. Like, right. I, you know, I just, it's it's one of those books that I think is either gonna fall under intense criticism um, because I think people will either not get what I was doing or they will get what I was doing and be, you know, and, and it's unexpected, mm. I, you know, talking about this work A little bit over the last couple of years with people and saying, Oh, I'm illustrating a book of fairy tales, really old fairy tales, and people going, Oh, uh huh, oh, cool. And then me being like, Uh, and (laughs) like, Isn't what? Aren't you as excited as I am? So, uh, what I realized while I was Mm -hmm. kind of describing this work was that I think that a lot of people are so used to fairy tale illustrations just repeating the text and not actually adding any layers to it. So I think it's either going to be shocking, like they're not going to know what to do with the illustrations. They're not going to really kind of understand. I don't know, uh, you know, I think people will understand, but I think that they'll kind of be like surprised by that. Like it won't be what they're expecting. Some people are going to expect the pretty dresses. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's going to be it. It's just going to be beautiful, pretty dresses. But almost all of those tales, even the pretty ones, even the pretty faces, there's- A real element of darkness that I intended to kind of infuse those illustrations with. Right. Because I think those stories are just not that straightforward. Right. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to romanticize everything in this book. I wanted to kind of give a starting off point for people to have conversations about some of the bigger themes that I saw in, in this work. Right. So... You know, I think it'll either get like ones or where people are going to be so shocked and be like, oh, my teenage daughter is reading this book and it's so awful and promiscuous and terrible. And, you know, this person should have, you know, there should be a warning on the front of this book or, uh, you know. But you're not overt
1: about it. So, it's not like, you know, you can read whatever (laughs) you read. Like, every individual is going to bring something to it. Something of their own to it. exactly. Exactly.
0: That's what I wanted to do with it. I wanted to give people a starting off point with the illustrations so that they could then take it and contextualize it within their own life. Right. Right. And within their own sort of place of you know, fear or non-fear, or whatever. I wanted to give people that space, I guess. Not that I'm giving it to them, but I wanted to create a book that gave space for that, that right. had room for that, there's for like a, There's like a
1: dialogue happening.
0: That's what I wanted to do yeah, with it, yeah,
1: yeah. Totally. Yeah, Cool, so now that you've done this, what's the next thing like what do you have What do you have coming up what, what, what? <laughs> I, I know it's like it's like oh my god you already did uh, this like, like what, what are you I, know, doing I, know, I know i know i know
0: i know i know i don't put any
1: expectation on you yeah
0: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'm in the i'm in the writing process right now on a few things that are in more of the kind of writing and proposal stages so i am working more on 100 mile house to um working more on 100 Mile House. <laughs> I've been saying that for years. Um, but yeah, I am working on 100 Mile House and I think that one's pretty close to pitching. So we'll see if anybody likes that story. Awesome. Um, yeah, and then uh, I have another story. Um, I don't wanna talk in too much detail about it, but it's actually the, it's, it's a graphic novel and it's actually a story that preceded The Wolfbirds. The Wolfbirds is my research. For this graphic novel, right? So yeah, and the
1: Wolfbirds. Just so everybody knows, mm. what's what's the because that's the one that where you won all the awards and everybody was like, "Well, I didn't you win the awards. I was nominated. You were nominated." <laughs> thank but, you. but everybody kind of went <laughs> crazy for this book because you were you were nominated for so many different awards. Yeah, so, and like it's beautiful, like oh, the illustrations and stuff. So just tell people about the Wolfbirds because it. It's sort of the beginning of your, you know, research into even yeah. this book, too. Yes, yes. So, so yeah. what is that? What is what is The Wolfbirds? Like, how did that come to be?
0: <laughs> so The Wolfbirds uh, was, uh, it's a picture book about wolves and ravens hunting in the wild. So I basically, my last name means Dawson, uh, which means son of the jackdaw. There's other people say it. So it was just a form of Davidson, but our family crest has ravens on it. So it. There must be some connection there. Right. Uh, yeah. So, son of the jackdaw. And uh, it's, um, and so, you know, growing up, that's always been sort of a theme in our family have been ravens. And I thought that I was going to do a book about ravens. And, uh, you know, but I started doing research and I realized that ravens, I discovered that ravens and wolves hunt together. And then I found out that there was one study done in the US with the wolves that were reintroduced uh, into Yellowstone National Park from Canada. And I got in touch with the lead ecologist on that study. His name is Daniel Stahler. Uh, he's an incredible, awesome uh, ecologist. His wife, Erin Staler, is an amazing. They're, they're an amazing sort of science power couple <laughs> in okay. Yellowstone. Yeah, and uh, he had done the very first and I think probably still to date only study on wolves and ravens. But at the time, it was the first and only study on wolves and ravens, and uh, I contacted him and I said, "Hey, I'm gonna do. I want to do a picture book on wolves and ravens. I know everyone probably tells you that, and but I really want to do a good job of it." And I said, "So here's a bunch of the research I've done, and uh, these are a bunch of the books and things that I'm reading, and I'm wondering if there's any way that we could, um, you know, hire you to be a consultant on it." And he got back to me right away, and he was like, "This." is amazing, I'm really excited about this, yes. And here's all my field notes. So I got all of his like, all of his notes, all of his information. And so the Wolfbirds really kind of came out of that research from Yellowstone National Park nice. um, on wolves and ravens hunting together. So it's a picture book for kids. And I worked, my uh, editor is John Crossingham. I would like to give a little shout out to him as well. He's actually totally. from Broken Social Scene. Cool. Yeah, and uh, and not of. Is his current band. Uh, and he's brilliant uh, and was instrumental in this book um, in terms of helping me to kind of, uh, you know, um, craft it into what it was. Uh, we both really felt like it needed to kind of be not one of those instructional books for kids, but like a song on paper. It needed to feel like poetry, it needed to feel like a song. Right. Um, needed to have that element to it. So that's really the way I kind of describe it is it's like, it's a song on paper. It's fully backed by science. Um, and it's uh, it's about wolves and ravens hunting together in the wild.
1: That's awesome. I didn't even know that that was a thing. So yeah, yeah. That's it's called a,
0: symbiosis, yeah, animal symbiosis.
1: Super exciting. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Okay, cool. Um, if people wanna follow your career and they wanna follow the release of this, and they wanna know where to get it how to get it, how can people follow you on social media? How can people get in touch mm. with your publisher? Where, where can we get uh, uh, White as Milk, Red as Blood?
0: You will be able to buy that book uh, anywhere that sells books. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I think. <laughs> unless, you know, unless there's a bookstore that somehow thinks fairy tales are terrible. <laughs> I don't know. You know, just books for kids. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, sorry, that was an odd comment. I meant... Uh, adults who look at books that are illustrated and assume they're just for kids. Right. Um, that's what I meant by that. So you will be f- able to find it probably any book uh, store. Cool. And uh, When's it coming out officially? Um, oh, and then, sorry, Chapters Indigo here, I right. believe, for ordering online and then uh, Amazon, I think, in the U.S. for ordering online. Right, right. So it comes out. Ah, yikes. I think it comes out April 20... <laughs>
1: I want to say the 24th. Yeah.
0: I think it's April 24th that comes out.
1: April 24th, as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, April 24th.
1: Yeah. Yes. Cool. So like right in ter- right around spring. Like mm-hmm. the perfect perfect thing to get to, get <laughs> to birth spring. a new <laughs> book
0: right in the spring exactly. when all the flowers blossom.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then for you, how do people yeah. follow your stuff and oh, thank you. on social media?
0: So my website is willowdawson.com, but social media, I'm most active on Instagram okay. and I've uh, been a little bit lax these last couple months, but that's gonna pick up soon. So it's uh, Instagram, it's just Willow Dawson. Nice.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for
0: coming in. This has been
1: a fascinating conversation. We got to explore themes of fear, and we got to talk about comics a little bit, and wilderness, and sickness, and illness, and all these different things. I, I really loved it. It was a, it was a great conversation. Yeah,
0: that was an amazing conversation. Thanks. All right. <laughs> and we'll
1: see you next time on Speech Bubble.
2: This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time.
1: Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and The Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice. Never Sleeps Network.